What's up, everybody? Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. I am Scott Lease, co-founder of the Surf and Sales Summit and co-host of this podcast, along with my good friend and partner in crime, Richard Harris. What's going on, Richard? Uh, just excited for this episode, because again, this is another one of the ones where we will try to seduce our guest into attending the Surf and Sales Summit in Costa Rica. But uh, yeah, we'll 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 find out if uh, we'll find out if this guy's a beach guy or a mountain guy or more like a house cat and just wants to stay inside on his couch the whole time. We're talking with one of the elder statesmen, if you will, in the sales game. I'm pretty excited because I'm I think that I'm the youngest person on this call right now, which is really making me feel like real good compared to my my two older brothers here. Uh, we're going to be joined by CEO, author, fractional sales enablement leader, keynote speaker. Former senior vice president, sales leadership guru, Roderick Jefferson from Roderick Jefferson and Associates. Before we introduce him and bring him on, Richard is going to tell everybody about HubSpot, our wonderful sponsor. Kick it off, Richard. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, HubSpot and the HubSpot Podcast Network. Thank you so much for sponsoring. Um, I want to talk about the AI approach that HubSpot's bringing, right? They, they, they lead with this understanding around the research that's out there that says, you know, AI can get rid of manual tasks, which I know we all want to do. Um, it can pull reports, summarize data. Uh, it could even do some of your outbound prospecting if you need it. And it can save anywhere from, I don't know, half hour to two hours a day, depending on how you use it and what your role is. And you know that's a minimum of two and a half hours a week, five hours a week, multiply that over a year. Like, What could you do with that extra time? How much money is being left on the table? So. Uh, please be sure to check out HubSpot AI's tools um, so they can try to help you streamline these processes. And they've got everything from ChatSpot to Content Assistant, uh, all in the CRM. And check them out at HubSpot.com. All right, Scott, back to you. We should do a whole episode where you and HubSpot attempt to onboard me in my technology deficiency and just see what a train wreck that would be. Scott, there are two issues there. One is I learned a long time ago, never to try to teach anybody how to ski. Second, <laughs> the second is never try to teach Scott much about technology. Anything. Yeah. About equally frustrating. Good, good way to live. Roger Jefferson, welcome to the Surf and Sales podcast, man. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, fellas. Good to see you both again. Yeah. Tell everybody a little bit about uh, what you're up to these days so they have some context for your expertise. Sure. So as you said earlier, fractional sales enablement later, excuse me, a revenue enablement uh, out there working with small to mid-sized companies, kind of in that 10 to 150 million, helping them to either establish and put together enablement function or up-leveling them. And I think the great thing is, and the word is fractional, be able to come in on a project basis, help them out either short-term, long-term, mid-range. Well, let's start. Well, hold on, hold on, Richard, before no. you already interrupt me in the very first time I go to ask you a question, this might be a record. Can we just, can we define revenue enablement? Because I feel like it has lots of different definitions and some people, maybe me, uh, don't exactly know what that means. Sure. You're right. I think if you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 12 different answers. And so why don't I throw mine in the hat as well? To me, revenue enablement is all about integrating strategy, processes, and technologies to optimize the entire customer lifecycle. And that's from lead gen all the way out to post-sell expansion and retention. 
It's also about connecting the dots and aligning sales, marketing, customer success, client services, revenue ops, finance, HR, all the lines of business so that we're all not just in the same boat, but rowing in the same direction with a common goal of ultimately sustaining revenue growth. See, that sounds really good at a, at a you know, enterprise level. What, what if I'm not there yet? Right. And maybe, maybe the better question is when does a company, when does a startup start to look at revenue enablement, you know, as, as an actual role, right? Cause you know, yeah. early on five, 10 people in the company, you know, you're just trying to get customers, right? Absolutely. Like trying to create a baseline of stuff. What, in your opinion, when do people go, okay, it's time to hire my first sales ops or rev ops person. I think it's at that you've, to your point, you just hit, you've got five people. It's time to really start thinking about enablement because otherwise what's going to happen is, is a couple of things. One, you've got a sales leader who is one generally not focused on enablement. They're focused on closing deals. Let's be honest. And secondly, these are not the people most of the time that you want out there trying to enable in sales, excuse me, and um, train your people. And the reason is there, you only get what's in their mind. They're not coming with that that kind of long tail mindset of enablement being kind of that marathon of ongoing. We always think about onboarding, and I'm glad you bring that up. But what happens when these people are already on board and they're rolling, right? Now you've got your sales leaders focused on closing deals, and you think they're going to be out there trying to up-level the skill set of their people. And most of the time, that's not going to happen. You need somebody that is really focused 24-7 on making sure that you're building out consistency, scalability, repeatability. Otherwise, you're kind of recreating the wheel over and over when, and over. But when do you do that? When you have two sales reps, three sales reps and a leader, like as soon as you have a sales leader, like in your mind, you know, when do you think that becomes something more than a discussion? Uh, three to five people in, in that range, because now- In the sales range. In the sales range. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because otherwise they're going to start kind of, hey, you've got this cool thing over here. Can I use this? Can I borrow this? And, and are you starting and are you starting with the mindset of enablement? Or are you starting it a little bit more with an, a mindset of operations to solidify the operations so that you can start to, to scale the enablement piece? I think it has to be concurrent, Rich. And the reason I say that is, and I'm not trying to avoid it, if I would, let me step back, get the ops pieces in place first. And that's kind of the the baseline, if you will, the slab of building the, the house. Then you bring in your enablement person. And now we can start putting the white paper, even the black paper, the windows and the framing and around that piece. But if you don't have the, the basics of, of operations, it's going to be difficult for us. Got it. Got it. Got it. What do you think the biggest resistance is from people? Um, the, I think the biggest resistance is we're viewed as either a, a cost center or B, the fixtures of broken things and broken people. I think that that lends itself to not really clearly understanding and being able to define the value that we bring and the why behind why you need an enablement function or person at, at least. I think the fixer of broken things and broken people is, is like the single best phrase that I've heard in a really, really long time. 
I've never heard of that before. Did you just make that up right now or have you been using that for a while? No, been been saying it for a while because that that's kind of how we've been viewed. We in enablement, kind of that junk drawer where you've got a battery, you've got a flashlight, you got an old sock, right? And and anything you need, there, there's a, a Phillips in there, a hammer, whatever it may be. We're not that. We are not here to fix things. We are here literally to partner and to help grow, solidify, and then iterate and, and push that increase around revenue. That's so good. The fixer of broken things and broken people. Maybe that'll be IT the has that worked out, Scott. They can have it. <laughs> Maybe, well, we're going to steal it. Maybe we'll make that the title of the episode. That's what I'm working like on. One of, the, one of the things that I heard you say, which I loved hearing, was... Um, the inclusion of uh, retention and expansion in this kind of revenue enablement function. So I'm going to ask you like a difficult question and I'm going to try to force you to not say, well, it depends, Scott. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Who owns expansion and upsell revenue? CX, customer success. Okay. Tell everybody why. I'm in agreement, by the way. So I, um, I, I well, want to hear because that I think there's me. a couple of reasons. One, Revenue drives behavior and they are compensated to make sure that they focus on upsell, cross-sell renewals and maintaining and building those customers for life. The other is most, and I'm going to say most, um, salespeople are focused on net new, and I'm going to go even beyond people. Companies are focused on that net new logo over and over and over. It's mandatory. It's needed. But at the same time, if you build this big, beautiful house, with a short hallway and they had trit out of the back door that helps no one. Yeah. I mean, so how do you get, you know, I through, through I think just the, the creation of the customer success role, right. I don't, I don't think it's anybody's fault. We've gravitated as an industry to those reps, not being sales, right. We, we want mm -hmm. them to be customer. We've redefined customer centric, you know, and we probably over-engineered it, right? Um, so how do you help, and I do this, right? I work with teams, but how do you help get that customer success team that doesn't like sales to own this, right? And from an enablement, because you, there's one, a skill thing, which they're pretty good at actually. Mm -hmm. And then there's the mindset, which I think is the biggest detractor. How do you, how do you approach that mindset? Absolutely. Great question. And I think it's actually easier than... Uh, we make it and to your point, we over-engineer this. The, the key is one, not trying to train and enable CSMs the same way we do with salespeople, right? I think everyone should have a baseline understanding of your, your services, your offerings, your buyer's journey, et cetera. But that's where it should also separate because to me, it, that, that back-end post-sale, it's about helping. It's not about selling. And, and goes to that point you were saying about mindset, right? I'm not asking you to go sell them anything. What I'm asking you to do is go out and start have, having conversations and stop giving presentations first and foremost. Go out and understand what's going on with them. What are the changes? What's happening in their space? What's happening from maybe an M&A perspective, a change of new products that they're releasing? What's going on in the competitive landscape? And then go back and have those conversations with them around Things that you they can only get by having that relationship with your company. And the second piece is, and this is a piece that gets left out so often, guys, 
And that is we learn everything about the company. And very rarely do we actually ask one of the, I think, of the most important questions that go unasked the most. And that is, so Mr. and Mrs. Customer, what can we do as a company to help you personally? Can we get you out of the doghouse? Can we put your name in lights? Can we get you a bigger voice? Can we help get you promoted? Because we all know right now that the wrong decision can be career limiting. And so find out what's important, not just to the company and their goals, but also for that individual. Because we're always screaming about, oh, I want a champion. I want a champion. What's the best way to do it? It's the same way we do in real life. You get to know that person. You find out what's important to them. Then you ask them a bunch of questions. Then you say, hey, I got a little experience on this, or I've heard about this, or I've seen this happen. This may work for you. Yeah. Why don't we do the same thing in corporate? It's like a, I do the same thing, but I, I phrase it maybe a little bit differently. And I, and I say, what can I do to help you personally? What can I do to help your team, your direct reports? Mm-hmm. And what will, what can we do to help the whole company? So it like goes from individual to their team, to the whole company, which I believe is sort of the pecking order that most employees kind of operate. They often care about and worry about themselves first, then their team, then actually the, the company. Absolutely. Um, so I kind of imagine if that, that question is never actually asked. Yeah. You're, you're only getting, you know, 40, 50% of the equation. Yeah. And it's the level of passion behind their response is very muted. If they're only thinking about, well, this would help my company. Great. <laughs> they care a lot more if it helps them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to put a, a caveat in there, especially these days. Yeah, especially these days. Go yeah. ahead, Richard. Scott, how do you think people think? They think about themselves first, then what? Then their team, if, if, they're, if they're in a leadership role, and then the company. Yeah, which I think you just defined corporate politics. That's why <laughs> corporate politics exists. Yeah. Selfish mode, right? How often yeah. are people doing things to figure out how to navigate their career first? Yeah, but I think I think that the corporation wants you to think about the company first, the team first, and yourself last. Absolutely. But I think most people think about it the opposite opposite way. And so when I sell, I try to appeal to the individual first, then their team, then the the company kind of perspective, which I think was sort of similar to what Roderick was saying. Yeah. And Richard, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Let's go back to the politics piece you're talking about. I think there, there's a small nuance where it moves from focusing on myself to it being really about just selfishness. And it's it's great, I think, to put your first yourself first, especially given what's going on in today's macroeconomics and what's happening out in the real world. Secondly, I think it also behooves people to never allow a company, a boss, a spouse, et cetera, to drive their career because nobody has the vested interest that you do. Now, here's where the problem comes in. The problem comes in when we have hierarchy that says X line of business is more important than Y. And now we we start to kind of erode that, well, why are they up here? We're doing the same amount of work or we're doing more than the other people are doing. It's it's something that comes and it's it's happens. And, and I don't care where you are. If there are two or three people in the company, there's going to be politics on some level, right? It's a matter of how it's mitigated and also the communication that goes on around, again, I'll say that word, why it happens, not just what happens. It's a little bit maybe of like, uh, there's always politics going on, 
but is it done in the light or is it done behind closed doors, like in the dark? Like there can be kind of, I know there's politics going on, but is it transparent? Is there a dialogue about it? Or is it all in the shadows and hidden away from everybody? And, and the ones that's done in the shadows, I think that's the one that really alienates people and freaks people out and people don't want any part of. Very well said. I, I agree. It, it happens all the time. It's whether or not there, there's malice behind it or, or if it's not as simple as I can be. Yeah. Well, I think a little, we may not be agreeing here with us. I think some of it too has to do with, with, you know, at the individual level, right? Like Scott, you know, me, I tend to get paranoid about things when I don't hear about it. Um, that doesn't mean a company is not being transparent. That's Richard's personality. That That's on me. That's not on the company. So um, I think that's where, you know, really understanding how your team operates and as a leader being transparent with them to help mitigate that um, to a certain extent, right? Because there's always stuff that's not discussed, but that doesn't mean it's done in the dark with a malicious intent, which I think is what you were talking about, Scott. Yeah, I uh, don't agree with you on this per, per usual. I think it is the company's responsibility because the company's responsibility is to get the most out of their people. So if I know you, that you need information or you get paranoid, and if you get paranoid, you shut down and don't perform, then my job as a officer of the company is to give you the information that you need that helps you perform at your best level. That's on the company. I'm an officer of the company. So therefore it's on me to do that for you. And you can't, I suppose, have every single person in the company involved in, in every single decision. That would be impossible, would make no, no sense. But there are so many things talked about behind closed doors for no reason. People have no idea what's going on. And most people err on the side of, well, it's none of their business. They should just focus on their job versus err on the side of, you know what, if we kind of talk to people about what we're thinking and the direction that we're headed, um, they might be, you know, a little more patient. They might be a little more bought into the mission and so forth. And I'm a firm believer in the latter. And, and I think most people operate in the former. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to look on both yeah. sides of this, guys, because I can see both sides. Right. And one side, I'm all about clear, concise and transparent communication. Because yeah, to your point, yeah, it, it does mitigate a lot of issues out there, a lot of rumors and scuttlebutt. But on the other side, as an executive, not everything is for everyone. And sometimes we do need them to stay focused on the job that they're looking at, that, excuse me, that they're responsible for, because some people get, you know, way, way out here away from what they're doing, and it takes away from their productivity. I think what it comes down to is... is uh, Communication and empathy, and and also as a leader, knowing how much and when and why to share things. If it's something that's going to add productivity and it's going to remove all of that nonsense and silos and politics, or not even remove, mitigate, yeah, there's value in it. But if it's something that's going to throw people off and, and they're not able to focus, and we know our people, especially our teams, there are certain things we can share with some that we can't share with others. For the simple reason that everybody doesn't know what to do with that information or how to continue moving forward while knowing that and not getting nervous or, or concerned. Yeah. I got a question for you. 
because this is a, we've never had this kind of conversation. I don't think anybody's ever really had a let's understand corporate politics conversation. So I'm excited. This goes back to the, you know, the hard skills are the soft skills. Either of you ever have any training on how to figure this shit out? Because <laughs> this is the part. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. And see, and that's the other part is, is we just assume because you have a certain level of tenure experience, logos or even title, you're just supposed to know this stuff. Right. Don't. Right. And, and that's why as a leader, I tell my team all, all the time, I'm going to screw up and I give everybody on this team permission to do so. There's not one perfect on the team person on the team. And I'm not that person either. Just because I may be at the top of the org chart doesn't mean that I'm the smartest in the room. And most of the time I'm generally not. <laughs> and so, and, and also be honest, look, this is first time I've run into this. I've got a great network around me. I've got mentors. Let me go find out how this works with other people and learn from what works and what doesn't. But if you pretend and you fluff and you try and bullshit these people, you lose all credibility. I want to ask, I want to change topics away from the politics of, of the corporate world for a second. I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about when in your sales career were you at your peak powers your peak performance strength okay and i want you to think about what is different now in the kind of sales arena and environment compared to back then God, we maybe right now he's at, his, maybe he's at his peak power right now for all i know i have no idea but Scott, we have, have very yeah. strong fingers to dial a rotary dial on a phone. <laughs> Scott and I are, or Roderick and I are old enough to remember those days. Uh, absolutely. You mean before that, that pound symbol was a hashtag? We're not yeah. going to go down that road. I, I was thinking about this the other day, though. Like, when was I at my peak performance level, my peak powers? And could I operate the same way now as, as then? And what is different? And so that's what I'm trying to to understand? It's a great question. I'd say, honestly, it was probably about 10 years ago okay. um, when I was at Oracle Marketing Cloud and had just left Salesforce and went over there. And I think the reason was um, there was so much freedom and, and autonomy and flexibility to try new things. And social media wasn't was what it is today, right? So it didn't put that pressure on of you had to put everything out there. The other thing was, I think there was more leeway and empathy around relationships than we focus on today in, inside of corporate. And what I mean is I had a team that was global and that is the, the closest team that I've ever had because um, I felt like I was building an extended family. I wasn't building a team, if that makes sense. I know it sounds kind of hokey, but can ask anyone on that team don't understand exactly what that means um and for those that weren't what it meant was we cared about each other it wasn't just for us it wasn't about ladder climbing or promotions or promoting even it was we had a common cause we loved what we were doing it was some of the most passionate people i'd ever worked with and they, we always pushed each other to be better but and sometimes it was a hard nudge. Sometimes it was a soft push, but we always knew that it was each other's best interest in mind. And it wasn't just work. We knew about what was going on with their family life, with the kids, the graduations, the growing up, 
the we shared parenting tips and things of that sort. I don't think we have that today. Um, I haven't seen it for a while, to be honest. And I you think we automated it out because part of it, part of automated it, yeah. out the soul. Yeah, I think a part of it is we we automated things, and secondly, we are so busy trying to do more with less right now, which I don't think is a, is a real thing. But we're so focused at it, heads down, just plowing, moving forward, that we forget that empathy is one of the strongest tools out there beyond AI, beyond any of the automation, because relationships are are the backbone of success, right? And I don't think that there's ever been a time where leading with humanity, empathy, and EQ has meant more than it does today. And I'm not just talking about active listening. I mean, really, truly showing empathy and caring for the people that you work with and that work under you or even above you. Yeah, it's interesting. I just wrote about this. It's not going to go out for a couple of days, but I I just wrote about this topic and what does empathy really mean? Um, There's a good article out there I just read today too from the Harvard Business Review, which sort of spawned my my post, but um, go Google it on empathy. And for those who are listening, um, it's really, really good. Uh, We need to take a quick break here. And then, uh, Roderick, I'm going to ask you the question I want you to answer. So I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think about it while I do uh, our quick little mid-roll. The question I want to ask is, because you're fractional, right? You're Mm -hmm. you're in that entrepreneurial space like Scott and I. So often, people want to hire us for fractional roles, which is great. But they still expect full-time output, so to speak, right? And I'm curious to know how you navigate that. Um, I have some basic answers, but I want to hear your thoughts on them. But first, we need to take a quick break and give a shout out to our good friend, Mark Roberts, who has a podcast called The Science of Scaling, uh, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. He spends time uh, talking about uh, the secret strategies and tactics to scale your company, and he brings in amazing guests. Um, There is... Um, a great episode called Don't Lead with the Product, Lead to the Product that I really like with the with Doug Ademic. So check that out uh, on the HubSpot Podcast Network or wherever you like to get your podcasts. It's called The Science of Scaling with Mark Roberge. Roderick, what are your thoughts on the question I asked? Um, it goes back to communication and, and being um, deeply clear on what you're doing, what outcomes look like, what success looks like, and sometimes sticking to your guns on that. What I mean, how do you say no? Cause I, I agree. Like it's all, you know, yeah. Scott, Scott and I have a different opinion on this all the time. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I tend to be, okay, it's this many hours. This is how I'm going to do it. Here are the desired outcomes. Scott is shaking his head violently at me. He's about to throw yes, like I'm giving myself whiplash over here. Right. So. Um, so I, I agree, like very clear expectations. And even when you do that, people like, oh, hey, could you go do this? Or, hey, could you do that? And it's sort of tangential to what you're doing, but it's not what you're supposed to be doing, right? So how do you, what do you say to those clients? Because they're already a client at this point. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Been, I've been in that situation like all of us has. And, and I think, first of all, um, being able to say no is, is oxymoronic for what people see as consultants. And I disagree on that. I think there has to be lines. Otherwise you start falling into, again, becoming the fixer of broken things and broken people. So be very, very clear on 
what your deliverables are. Always go back to what you agreed upon in that SOW. Secondly is um, reminding why you're here as a fractional piece and saying no. Let me let me come back to the bottom line. Sometimes you just have to say no. And sitting in a bunch of um, meetings and, and updates and things of that sort, it's probably not your best use for them or for the money that they're paying you for. And so going back to reminding that one, I'm not an employee. I am here as a partner to you to guide things along as a consultant. Secondly, here's what we agreed upon. By doing all these other things, I'm actually doing a disservice to you because we're not going to actually be able to meet those objectives. And neither one of us want to do that. The third is reminding over and over, sometime to the nth degree, of, these are the things that we have to do. And this is the time frame that we have to do it. And in order to do it, this is what it's going to take to get to those pieces. And I don't want to frustrate nor disappoint you. I put it back to them. I don't want to frustrate or disappoint you. So in order to do that, we need to get back on track. And, and then getting agreements on, are we now on the same page and, and moving back and the, the trains back on, on the track? If the answer is no, talk it through, be human. All right. So what am I misunderstanding or, or not hearing that you are expecting that we did not agree up front? Look, things are going to shift, but things can't monumentally change. You can't say you're in the red zone and suddenly now all of a sudden you've pushed me back to the 50 yard line. You're wasting your money and also your time. And it's not the best use of skill set for your company. Scott, I know you've been sitting on your hands. Your <laughs> I can feet. see him over there chomping at the bit already. He's like, I think he's going to need stitches in his bottom lip because he's been biting it so hard for so long. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, <laughs> I agree on the clear communication part completely. Where I, I, I don't operate is like, it's going to take this many hours. You're going to get this many hours from me. Richard, I think, is over-specific with some of that stuff. I also have a hard time tethering myself to results that I don't have 100% control over. So let's say, you know, we've all been in this position before. Like, if you train somebody the right way how to sell something and they don't do it and don't get the result, that's not all on me. So I'm not tethering my performance based on that result because I wasn't there all day to make sure they did what they were supposed to do. I wasn't there to coach them like that's on you, right? So I avoid all of that kind of stuff. I also try to avoid specifics around due dates of deliverables because a lot of the work that I do is a collaboration. So let's say, Roderick, you're my client. And uh, I don't know anything about your industry, okay? And you want me, you want help writing a sales script, okay? Well, I don't know shit about your industry. So I need you to deliver like a V1. I'll give you a template of a sales script, but I, you got to produce like a V1 to get me going, okay? Well, if we agreed on a due date of August 30th and you don't get me that uh, V1 until the morning of August 30th, I don't have time. I'm going to, I'm going to miss the deadline. That makes me look bad, but it really wasn't my fault. So I have issues with, with some of these items right there. So for the work that I do, I avoid due dates. I avoid time uh, stamps and things like that. I've done a very good job of essentially like removing myself 
from my and my compensation from those types of uh guidelines or i don't know what, what the right word is mm-hmm. i don't i end up not having to deal with some of that stuff and richard is bitter because he can't figure out how to implement a similar thing that's not true i've actually gotten better at it um well, how about that good good i don't think we're really dis- disagreeing it's just like it's just different uh approaches a different yeah, approach it goes back to know your audience right and so I don't think either one of them is and communicated up front too. There it is. That's yeah. the key. It's yeah. communicating it up front. So you know where you're going. I think there's some value. If you can get away with that, God bless you. I have not to date, right? Mine are, they have to be time driven and also outcome. And I'm not talking about, Oh, I'm going to go back to something you said, Scott. I don't own the outcomes. They own that piece. What I do is I own that guided journey that gets you there. I will provide you with the advisory, with the tools, with the templates, with the best practices. What you do with it is up to you. And that's actually part of why I love being a consultant. I can't be held to you something that I don't own and can't control. Yeah. I I, I can get you the water. If you don't drink, that's entirely- You probably had people who tried to tie your compensation into that result. Early on. Yeah. And and the answer was no. Yeah, exactly. Because I I cannot be compensated for something or even dinged for something that I have absolutely no control. There you go. So we're speaking the same exact language. And I think for anybody who's listening, who's in consulting or who's thinking about going into consulting, this is a very, very important point. Um, And dig your your heels on it and get get clarity around it. So yeah, I think Richard, that's, that's why both you and I are so prescriptive around the the depth of detail when we go into an engagement, because at that point you can come back and say, this is what we, you and I agreed upon, right? If it's going to change again, there's always alters and we all have to be flexible, but you can't go outside of that, that scope of work because now you're asking me to do something that may or may not even be in my skill set, may not be something that's agreed upon or what you need, quite frankly, just because it was a whim. Yeah, that's, and that's my whole thing. Cause I feel like that's where I could quote unquote upsell them to additional services. Whereas Scott, maybe you just, Scott makes three times more money than you and I do. Probably. That's because he makes money yeah. more than all of us. He so can... he probably charges more <laughs> engagements than we do. So that's probably how. Well, but, but, but maybe, maybe, maybe a differentiator is upfront. I'm just like, I'll do everything. Like what, I don't care about the whim because I'm like, whatever they bring up, I've dealt with before and I'll be able to handle. And therefore maybe I can charge a premium and then avoid all the like subtle bullet points because I'm just like, yeah, whatever comes up, we're going to deal with it. We're going to tackle it. That's what I don't do. All right. I don't either. Today. So maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe that's what it is. I don't, I don't know, but maybe. uh, Maybe by saying you can do everything is great for me. I've always believed I can do anything. I can't do everything. And the problem is they want to pull us into everything. When you don't give them those gale, those. Uh, but I think, I think Scott's point is being able to say, look, I'll do everything. And if they ask you for something, it's like, well, yeah, I can do it, but it's not my, it's not my strength. Scott would do that in that moment. I think is how Scott would handle that. Yeah, I probably, I probably would. I also just know that um, hearing yeah. that I can do everything is very comforting to people. 
And most people never ask for anything even remotely odd mm. or out of scope, right? There's so, some value in that now. Huge right. there you of, go. Of, of comfortability by knowing I've got a guy that could do this, whether exactly. they ask or not, he could, or he has experience with it. Yeah, or, some value in or that. he can find somebody in a red hot second mm-hmm. who yeah. can do it or, or, or assist with it, right? Cool. Anyway. Great conversation. I've had, I've had a lot of fun. We're headed towards the end here. We want to give you a chance to ask us uh, a question or two or, or uh, you know, seek counsel, if you How will. How can we help you? How can we help you? First of all, thanks, guys, for the opportunity and for this chat. Um, where I could, the, the, the question is, how can we get the word out of really the value of working with a fractional and enablement leader, and I'll be more specific of my company, to show that value because I, I think it's starting to gain groundswell, but we're not there yet. Interesting. I um... Because we've been doing it with CEOs and COs and CMOs for years. You say fractional CXO, they get it. What could we do to really raise the value of, because it's not just myself, there are a number of us that are- Yeah, I, I, I actually feel like it's gained quite a bit of momentum and it's, and it's like pretty damn popular now. So bear with me for a second. Um, if you're trying to set all this stuff up, if you're a five to $150 million company, you're either trying to set it up for the first time or you're trying to fix it because it's gone off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. So it's either a- uh, a, a, a redo or, or a build for the first time, right? So you've got a couple options. You can try to do it yourself, which almost never works, especially, especially if the founder has no sales or revenue background, right? But I suppose that is an option. Um, they can try to ask their early founding AEs to do it. That doesn't almost ever work because they don't know how to do all this kind of stuff, but that is an option that people try sometimes. They can try to hire a full-time VP of sales, head of sales for this type of thing. We all know how difficult that is to hire the right person. Most VPs of sales, once they've kind of been in the trenches once or twice, all they really want to do is be a VP of spreadsheets and they just want to hire everybody to do all the work for them. So it's difficult to hit the bullseye, which is part of the reason why uh, it's such quick turnover and those people are very, very expensive. Or there's the other option, which is you work with somebody like one of us in a fractional kind of capacity to kind of act as a stopgap and you partner and we build all these things and we help you kind of get to these milestones. We're like, okay, now it would make sense to hire a couple of AEs and now it might make sense to hire uh, a VP of sales. Those are really the options that people have. All right. I believe, and I see the trend, I think that more people than ever are open to this kind of fractional thing. The other thing that's happened is there has never been so many fractional VP of sales on the market (laughs) because so many of us who were VPs of sales, full-time employed W2 people, we all got sick and tired of the corporate bullshit. That's what happened. We all got raked over the coals. technical term, Scott? Yes. Yes, it is. We all got <laughs> raked over the coals too many times. We all drank the Kool-Aid too many times. We all thought we'd make a billion dollars too many times, right? So at some point, all of us are like, I can't, I can't do this game anymore. 
let me try to help people in a different kind of capacity. And now people are kicking themselves out of the game into the fractional game way sooner. The likes of us, we did this kind of role a half dozen times. Some of these people now were ahead of sales one time for like six months and they're like, I'm a fractional CRO now. So the, the, the market is flooded with it. So I actually am having a different kind of experience than you because I think that the momentum is there and it's kind of more in the limelight than ever before. Richard? Yeah, I agree. I think the challenge is um, it's a hot topic. People want to do it. They don't know what to look for. They don't understand the best practices, right? So, you know, if if I think I'm thinking like a founder, right? And my VC has said, you know, grow revenue. Maybe they've said, go get a fractional CRO. Don't hire someone yet. Maybe whatever, you know, what content's out there? Because that's the first thing I think founders do, you know, particularly when you have technical founders who, um, you know, very, you know, they like to do their research ahead of time, right? Like that's their thing. So do you have the content out there to help promote that? That's at that sort of, how do I go draw some people in? The other is you've just got to talk about, it. you got to talk about best practices like we all do, right? Like it's right. In your, your LinkedIn posts and your videos. And it's like, okay, so you want a fractional CRO? Great. Here are five things to avoid, right? Don't hire this person as a fractional CRO, right? Not what you should hire, but what you should. That's what makes you look like the expert because you're, they're going to be like, yep, I don't want that. I don't want that. Okay. Roderick knows what I want. So to me, that's the kind of content that I would be doing. Yeah. But, um, and, 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 and what would help potentially Roderick is in terms of how to get that message out there. I think the most important question is how to hire the right fractional person. Because yes. like I was saying, there's some kid out there who was in sales for a hot minute, who's now a fractional CRO who will, advertise that they'll do things on the cheap compared to somebody like you or I, Roderick, right. who's been in the seat a half dozen times, done it successfully all those times, elder statesman, right? We've been in the game for a long time. So how do you hire the right person? It's do they have the chops? Have they done the actual role as an operator multiple times? And have they helped multiple companies as a, uh, in a fractional kind of capacity that have had a good outcome. Then do you have the network? You got to have the network, Roderick, to bring referrals your way, to get introductions, to have people say, oh, you should talk to this guy, Roderick, right? And you got to have content that speaks to and educates the audience on what to look for, what somebody does, why it's important, what pains that you solve. And that content shines a light, hopefully, towards your network and towards the chops that you possess. This is where Richard's so tactical and Scott's so strategic. <laughs> you gotta, but you know what? In order to be a solid um, consultant, you've got to be tactically strategic, right? Or strategically tactical, whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah. And that's what I see is missing. And to your point, you answered Actually, the second question I was going to ask you guys around what to look for, what not to look for. I want to ask a, a separate question now and something we've been talking about. There's a lot of folks out there that were released, cut, whatever you want to look at, right? Out of a job and like to your point now, oh, I'll go be a consultant. In your, and, and this is to both of you guys now, if this is someone for the first time going out to this, because I think there's a number of, of folks out that are consulting now that shouldn't be. 
they're not consultants. They they're literally should be working in-house, but this is an option for them. How do you, if you are someone that's looking at hiring a fractional enablement, what should they be looking for and kind of let top to your point beyond you've hit it, the chops, the network, the content. If you're that person that's looking to go be a consultant, what do they need to know first? And, and what should they not do? You've given us the good, what you should do. How about the, what should they not do? I think they should not believe that their first couple of customers are going to be their indication of long-term success. Their first couple of customers are going to be people they know. Mm -hmm. And which is good, right? There's nothing wrong with it. Get some logos, you do those things. And if they don't know how to leverage that, both from a network perspective and to content perspective, whatever that means for them, then they're going to fail. Um, I also think that uh, they also don't, I don't think they understand some of the behind the scenes business shit you got to get done, right? Like all of a sudden being responsible for your own health insurance, fucking expensive, right? Particularly a family, like it ain't cheap, right? And so that's, that's a piece. And then the third thing I would say, I would tell them is don't undervalue yourself. Don't, don't. So glad you said that. Yeah. Don't, don't think, well, okay, I could do this for five grand. I know, you know, Richard Scott and Roderick charge 10. It's like, well, why wouldn't you try to charge 10? You just lost five grand. Yeah, I know you want a customer, but you still got a life to live, right? So there's a balance in there about understanding how to price yourself might be, don't make the mistakes around pricing yourself the wrong way, might be the right. But what should the new consultant not do? That's the question, right? Yes. I think they should, excuse me, I think they should not tackle something that's completely outside of their ICP and experience. So for example, a brand new consultant who spent their entire operating career selling to restaurants should probably not take on a consulting gig where the client is selling to the Inc. 100 and is trying to sell Disney and Coca-Cola, even though the money, you know, might be there. Like you just haven't done that before and you should be transparent uh, about that. Uh, Number two, you should, to the best of your ability, stay away from bad money. Meaning somebody who redlines every section of the contract, who's trying to negotiate down the payment terms, who doesn't want to do net 15, they want to pay you net 45, who is just like nitpicking everything. That person in the beginning is going to be equal or double a pain in the neck once you're actually engaged with them. Mm-hmm. So beware of, of that uh, type of thing. And the last thing may surprise you. The same way we tell people, be careful relying on one stream of income in your W-2 role, and you should have a side hustle. The same thing is true for us who run our own businesses. If your only stream of income is your consulting business, I'm warning you that that is dangerous. So you still have to diversify. You still should write a book like Roderick did and get book royalties. That probably pays for, you know, 
a bowl of Chipotle once a month. <laughs> Every other but, month. There you go. <laughs> but you got to get book royalties. Yeah. Maybe you can run events like Richard and I do at Surf and Sales. Maybe you can do cohort trainings. Maybe you could do keynote speaking like Roderick does in addition. So maybe you have real estate uh, property income. doesn't matter what it is. You could have a laundromat business, soda machine business. doesn't matter. But if you're just thinking, oh, I left my corporate sales job and, and now I'm a, a consultant. I'm going to go all in on my consulting business. And that's your only stream of income. Newsflash, risky. Beyond Very risky. risky. Be Very risky. risky. Because we know there's high highs and low lows, right? Yeah. You've got to have something to balance those out. Thanks for that share of information, guys. I love it. Know your lane. Don't do things that don't fit for you. All money ain't good money. And make sure you diversify. Nailed it. All right. Thanks for joining us, man. This was a blast. You know, we got to figure out, Roderick, are you a beach person? Are you a mountain person? Or are you a, a house cat? Um, I'm definitely not a house cat. That's for sure. Um, I would say I'm probably more a mountain person. I, I like that getting out and just solitude of being able to slow the mind down and become one with nature. I'm not the beach guy. Cause I'm not crazy about sand in my toes. Not really. <laughs> And I'm the only one in my family, by the way, they would all go to the beach seven days a week. If we're up to them, I'm like, you go right ahead. All right. Well, you see, we gotta we gotta work on the uh, influencers in this deal, Richard, before <laughs> yes. we go right to the decision maker. That's what it is. <laughs> Roderick, what's the best way for people to find you, man, and learn more about your company and you? Um, I am all over social media. I will give you guys my link tree that is consolidated for show notes and such. Yep, but I've already for those put it in looking there. on LinkedIn at Roderick Jefferson, you can find me on Twitter and Threads at the Voice of Rod. On Instagram, Roderick underscore J underscore associates. Or you can find me uh, on my company website at RoderickJefferson.com. Listen, the voice of Rod, that is so good. What a hand <laughs> that is. I yeah. used to do professional voiceovers. And so fantastic. I, just, I kind of fell into it. Roderick Jefferson, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Surf and Sales podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for having me, guys. Take Thanks. care.